Hi, I'm Jackie, and in this series, we're going to dig into the concepts of faith, hope, love, and lament, and I have to be honest with you, it, it looks different for me now. Some of the things I used to believe, I don't any longer, and I'm trying to figure out the complexities of how to love a mentally ill family member or hold on to hope when sexism continues to reign, not only in the culture, but in our churches. Issues have gotten more complex and more nuanced, so what we're going to do is we're going to look back on these issues, faith, hope, love, with a whole lot of wrinkles. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcello Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. You know, over the past year and a half, maybe two years, I've had a lot of women come into me struggling because they no longer embrace some of the beliefs that they were raised with. And there's a bit of fear around that, a bit of doubt and angst and confusion. And I know that because it's also part of my journey. And that's some of the things I want to talk about in these next few episodes. I want to talk about what it means to order our faith and have it disordered, or some people use the word deconstruct, and then reorder. I mean, is it okay? Am I okay? These are some of the questions we've been asking. First, I probably need to tell you, um, I, like most of you, didn't grow up in a Christian environment. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't know any other Christians. And it really wasn't until in my early 20s when I attended Dallas Theological Seminary that my uh, worldview, my Christian, I should say my American Christian worldview, got ordered. I mean, that's where it was developed, right? We all have this stage in our life in which our, our faith journey was developed, ordered, Mine just happened to be in seminary. And I have to tell you, when I graduated seminary, I thought that everything that I had learned there was absolutely right. There was no other way to see it. If you didn't see it the same way we saw it, well, then, quite frankly, you just hadn't arrived. I know nobody else ever thinks that way, but I have to be honest. I used to think that way. I didn't know it back then. When I graduated, I would have said, oh, yeah, it's just Jesus. My faith is just Jesus. But looking back, I had a whole lot of set of beliefs, a whole lot wrapped around that, hills I would die on. And I found out that in particular when my younger brother asked me if I would baptize his son, and I was like, oh, no, you can't do infant baptism. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute. It's not just Jesus, is it? I've got a set of beliefs around that, Jesus plus baptism and how that's supposed to be done. And then there were issues about whether you could speak in tongues or not. And so then it became Jesus plus the baptism and also speaking in tongues and then also what women could do or couldn't do in the church. There was this whole set of beliefs about whether or not someone could get divorced and what were the ramifications and the particulars that allowed them to and and how to pray. had a whole system for praying, not so much anymore. I just say, just pray. 
I even had a set of beliefs around whether or not you should read Harry Potter. I think my kids were the only ones that didn't read it at that time. A whole lot of set of beliefs that distinguish who's right, who's wrong, who's in, who's not, what's good, what's bad. This isn't new. I mean, this is exactly what Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church. Because inside that church, they too were having these spiritual battles about, you know, who's doing it the right way or the best way, or as we would say, the most spiritual way. That's what the conversation was about when you talk about spiritual gifts and and when they talked about marriage and singleness and head coverings. And they even had a fight over whose pastor was most right, Paul or Apostle. Apollos, I mean, sorry. And we do the same thing, right? We mention the church we go to. Why? Because we want people to know we go to the one that's right. Nowadays, our battles are maybe not so much around uh, spiritual gifting or head coverings, but we have them, don't we? Things that determine whether we're right or not. Who's most spiritual? Who has the best understanding? And if I had to ask you, you'd be able to tell me some of those battles, wouldn't you? You would most likely say things like uh, homosexuality. Yep. Gender identity. Mm-hmm. Immigration. Yep. We're having that battle, aren't we? We're still talking about what women can and can't do. Politics. How about Republicans versus Democrats, or if I even just mention the name Trump, right? It's here. We have it. This is what's going on, and it's what's been going on. And Paul says to them, and I think he says to us, hey, What matters most is faith, hope, and love. Love being the most important. So what I want you to know is ordering, this idea of developing a a Christian worldview, it's normal. It's part of our process. All of us have gone through it. In fact, not only is it a part of our process, it's actually a good part of our process. It's a necessary part. We need to look at it that way. Um, Walter Brueggemann is probably one of my favorite Old Testament profs. Gosh, he's smart. Love his brain. And he says that we see ordering in the first five books of the Bible. They call that the Torah. It's where God's people are ordered, given a, a worldview around their God, right? Given identity through law, tradition, structure, group rituals. There's clarity, certitude. He goes on to say that this is really important for establishing the nation of Israel. It's helpful and easiest for children to begin this way. It's how we learn that we're special and loved and safe. When I look back, I have to admit I am so grateful for those years of certainty where I was so sure. Because to be honest with you, I don't think I could be who I am today without that foundation. Hey, I should probably pause here and just mention to you We've been doing a Bible study called Faith, Hope, Love, and Lament. And if you want to go deeper into these subjects over the next several episodes, feel free to hop over to themarcellaproject.com and just register for the Bible study. There you'll find uh, scriptural readings, questions to noodle on, and you'll engage with our private Facebook page with other women who are having conversations about these concepts. Like I said before, um, some of the things I used to believe I'm not so sure of anymore. And some of them I don't believe at all. And I think that's true of you too. I know many of you have been sharing that with me. So what is it? Take, take a moment to just think. What did you grow up believing that you were so sure? Like, I mean, die on that hill so sure. And now, <laughs> you're not so sure. 
Or maybe you don't believe it at all. And you shifted, right? How did others respond to you shifting, to shedding? Your parents, maybe you have Christian parents, and they raised you with a particular set of beliefs, and you're shedding some of those, and it's not going so well at the family gatherings. Or all of a sudden, this small group that you've been with for a very long time, you're not clicking with anymore because, I don't know, Trump, homosexuality. Your church community, you see a rift. Could be some really close friends. Yeah, me too. And what are we told? We're told things like, I could probably have you fill in the word slippery. There you go. We're on a slippery slope heading toward liberalism or worse yet, like unbelief. And it creates in us a sense of angst, doesn't it? Confusion. It's unsettling. We don't want to disappoint people. We don't want to lose relationships. So there's fear wrapped around this shifting. I know that. I also know that you and I are not the only ones going through this. So are pastors, many of them. My husband and I have been pastors for a long time, and therefore we kind of hang in a pastor circle. Pastors are deconstructing too. They just can't do it in front of people. Can you imagine their angst? I had a pastor come over for dinner one night, and she asked me about this whole concept of deconstruction, and you could tell it was disturbing her, and she was trying to, like, put categories to it and understand it. And so I just said to her, you know, I don't find it all that weird or threatening. And and I used my children as an analogy. I have three kids. They're young adult children, almost 30. And Steve and I, we raised our kids to have a worldview, a American Christian, conservative evangelical worldview. That's how we ordered them. That's how they developed their worldview. And then they grew up, and they went to college, and they came came to know people and bumped into other concepts, and they had to ask some questions about what they were handed when they were younger. And they're like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not keeping that anymore. I'm shedding that. Now, here's what I want you to know. It's not like they let go of everything that we handed them. And so there was continuity and some discontinuity. They let go of some things, put some new things on. And I look at that and I think, that's just normal development. And if it is normal development for our kids to go through that, which I would vie probably every single one of us, understand we went through that too, why couldn't it be that way for our spiritual journeys also? I will um, never forget, when I graduated from seminary, I graduated thinking that women couldn't lead in the church. I don't know that I actually gave it a lot of thought so much as just gradually, you know, like took that on through osmosis because that's the position of the seminary I graduated from. And then lo and behold, throughout the years, um, I became a really good preacher, preacher to women at first, and I was good at it. And because I was good at it, my gifting threw me into an arena I never wanted to be in. Can women preach in front of men? And it was because of my gifting, I had to go back to the scriptures, cry out to the spirit, look at the tradition of of church history, and, and wrestle down with Jesus. What did he say about what I could and couldn't do? And I mean, I wrestled him down. I'll never forget one time being at my lake house, reading a couple books, trying to figure out the different interpretations, how people have viewed um, what women can and can't do. 
and I read this one book that was so extremely conservative, um, I just laid on the couch and cried and said, Lord, I don't, don't want to sin against you. I don't want to make a mistake, but if this is the kind of, I don't know you as this God. I've never experienced this kind of harshness or oppression. It was hard. It's, it's hard to shift your theology, but shift I did. Two and a half, three years later, shift I did. And in 2008, uh, I became the first female preacher in our megachurch to preach from the pulpit. And it was just, <laughs> I can't even explain it. There's a cost to shifting. I had to have a bodyguard because my brothers and sisters in Christ were so frustrated that, that my church was allowing me to stand in the pulpit on a Sunday morning. Several of my best friends left the church, and that was really painful. People who used to hire me to come to speak were no longer hiring me, so it even impacted my finances. People said things to my kids. On the blogosphere, it went wild. I mean, it was ugly, the things that they said about me and my husband, our church. Downright ugly. And I'll never forget one day, um, two of our friends, Ben and Amy, um, went out to dinner with us, and it was a tiny little restaurant. There was a thin alley, or not alley, aisle that you had to walk down, and Ben was first, and then Amy, and then my husband Steve, and I was the last one coming down the aisle. And as we were going to the back of the room where our table was, there was another couple that was kind of to the side, and they noticed Ben, and we all knew them from a church that we all previously attended together. And they stood up, and, hey, how are you, and all that stuff, and Ben introduced, you know, his wife, hey, you remember Amy, and there's, and this is our friend Steve, you may not remember him, and then I came, and I was the last one. And as he said my name, and the man saw who I was, he was putting his hand up to shake and say hello, and as he said, this is Jackie Reese. The man immediately recognized me because, of course, my face was in the paper because I was the first preacher, and he withdrew his hand. And, you know, it was during that time that I was forced to ask some questions that I was not asking before. I started asking the question, like, what is the church? What does it mean to be the body of believers? I, I had to figure out how to process the ugliness that was happening to me, not by people who didn't like Jesus, but by people who did, right? I started asking questions I wasn't asking before. This happens to us, doesn't it? It happens to me. It happens to you. We find ourselves in this situation where life and beliefs collide, as Carolyn Custis James says, and it's there we start asking new questions. Questions about us, about God, about others, and the world in which we live and move. And what I want you to know, these questions that we are asking, they are the very questions Jesus wants us to ask. Order. It's part of our journey. And so is disorder or deconstruction. In fact, as Walter Brueggemann points out, we see that in the Old Testament also. We see it in the writings of the prophets, right? There's a whole lot of questions that are starting to be asked because things didn't go as they planned for the Israelites. They find themselves in captivity. Now they're asking new questions, different questions, right? Wrestling with God, disorder, deconstruction. It's part of our spiritual journey. And I think it's this part of our spiritual journey that we find most 
unsettling, where we experience perhaps the most loss. Alas, why I think Paul should have included lament in his verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Faith, hope, love, and lament. Because I think, as you will see as we go along, that lament always plays a role in our faith, in our hope, and in, in our love. You know, when I was younger, simple answers worked. Dualistic answers, you know, where there's a yes or a no, good, bad. But I'm finding, as I grow with ink wrinkles all over my face, and it's just not cutting it for me anymore. Because life, I've found, is more complex and nuanced and even mysterious. And I will never forget the first time I was challenged about that dualistic thinking, you know, that there was a right and a wrong. And it happened to be in the class, and I was going to get my doctorate with 26 other male pastors underneath Dr. Haddon Robinson, and I was the only female in the class. And Dr. Haddon Robinson had a visiting professor come, and he was teaching on divorce out of a passage in Matthew. And this visiting professor, I'll call him Rob, said that there was absolutely no biblical reason for divorce. And I am the only woman sitting in the front going, hmm, what about abuse? What about domestic violence? And, you know, I work with women. And so I'm, I'm very aware that this is part of our story. And I can feel like welling up inside me like I'm getting, you know, like bright red because I, I know that somebody needs to bring this up. And if I'm the one that brings it up, I'm going to be labeled the feminist in the room, right? So I literally like had this Braveheart concept going in my head, hold, hold, hold. And thank God I didn't have to ask. A man in the back asked, what about, what about abuse? And this professor, Rob, said, well, even if there's domestic violence, and then he even went one step further. He said this concept like, hey, I might even ask the wife, when your husband came home drunk, did you get assertive with him or did you just kind of lay low until the next day? Now I'm really boiling mad, right? But I don't say anything. Hold, hold. Well, that night I went home and I got to tell you, like, I, I was disturbed. I, I couldn't sleep all night long. I just couldn't, I kept thinking to myself, oh my God, if these brilliant professors cannot, cannot agree, because what had happened, oh wait, I got to back up, I forgot to tell you. What was upsetting to me was not only what this man said, but I had heard another professor from the same seminary that all of us had attended say something very different about that passage in Matthew, about reasons why you could get divorced. And I'm sitting here going, oh my God, I've got these professors from the same seminary who are looking at the same passage, who are not landing with the same answer. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, if they're brilliant and spend all their time studying this and they don't have the same answer, how, how am I to be right? How am I to know how to advise women when I sit across the table from them and they ask me, do I have the biblical rights to walk? And what I say to them is going to carry weight. And so I'm, I'm disturbed all night long. In the morning, I wake up and I call Haddon Robinson and I say, hey, I need, to, <laughs> I need to talk to you. And so we met for coffee and I shared what was going on and I said, I need to be right. I mean, this is serious. I can't, I can't give uh, the wrong answer here. If I do, I send somebody back home to be beaten. And he, in his wisdom, he's 87, he was 87 years old, just such a wise man. 
he just kind of sat back and he said, Jackie, you can't be right. You can't be 100% right. What you need to do is wrestle Jesus down with these concepts. You need to fight with him. You need to wrestle him down and then come to some sense of certainty as best you can. Always holding that lightly because you may need to go back to Jesus and wrestle it down again and realign. See, what he was doing was he was forcing me to move from right, wrong, to this idea that that our faith is more nuanced and complex and mysterious than I had realized. And Walter Brueggemann, he, he again addresses this in the Old Testament. He says that's what the wisdom literature is, right? We come out the other side of disorder, and we have a more complex, nuanced language. The Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Book of Job. Language of mystery and paradox. In our wrinkled years, we we start to be able to hold the contradictions in ourselves, in others, God, and the world in which we live and move. Now, let me tell you how this plays out now in my later faith. Recently, um, a friend of mine, someone I really value, wrote this statement on Facebook. And so, because I knew her and I I gave what she said much weight, I wanted to think it through seriously. And she had put on Facebook this statement. All right, you're listening? When a person tells you you hurt, you don't get to decide you didn't. Let me say it again. When a person tells you you hurt them, you don't get to decide you didn't. And when I heard that, I read that, I thought to myself, yeah, there's something in there that's true. There's a yes, and then there's also a no. Because it made me think of like Proverbs 15, where it tells us we're to listen to wise, constructive criticism. But on the other side, Proverbs 18 tells us, fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. And those two verses came to my mind when I read that statement because it it took me to an incident I had had with my dad several years ago. You may not know this, but um, I grew up in a family of five kids, mom and dad, and dad was very abusive. He is, was not a nice man, and I'm saying that nicely. And several years ago, after 40 years of marriage, my parents separated. And I happened to be in New York visiting my mom at her house, and my dad came over. And I'll never forget, we got into this conversation, and he said to me, you hurt me way back when. And then he went on to tell me that he was hurt when he was having an affair with a woman at our company that we all worked at. I was forced to work alongside her, knowing she was having an affair with my dad and knowing what it was doing to my mom. And he was hurt because I wasn't nice to her or him. And I just sat a little stunned, like, I don't even know what to do with what you're saying to me. And then I reminded him that I was 10, that I was 10. And so I read statements like this now, and I have to hold into um, my hand the tension between these two proverbs, right? Because things are more complex than they used to be. Sometimes it's a yes, sometimes it's a no, sometimes it's yes and no. In my wrinkly years, the questions are getting bigger. They're more complex. I suspect they are for you, too. Like, how do I love a mentally ill family member that just keeps blowing up our family? Or how do I hope when sexism continues in the church is silent about it, or worse, complicit? How do I reckon my husband's work in South Sudan, where a collective people have suffered for 
decades through war, rape, poverty. How do I reckon the havoc of the coronavirus that it's having on me and you, our country, the globe? See, these are serious, complex questions. And for me, simple answers just won't do anymore. It's interesting to me, there's all this discussion in 1 Corinthians 1 through 11 about all the right way to be, you know, what's most spiritual and what's not. All this discussion. And then in um, verse 11, just before Paul says what he says in verse 13, he says these words. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned like a child. But when I grew up, I put childish things away. See, I think Paul is reminding them and us what matters is faith, hope, love, love being the most important. And we need to move from being ordered to disordered to reordered, that that is just part of the normal spiritual journey. So in these next following episodes, I want us to consider if faith, hope, and love is what matters most, then what does it look like with wrinkles? That's for our next episode. Talk to you then. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.